Good evening, everyone. If you'll recall from last week, we left off in the 1930s, where in the United States, classification of mental illness was frankly a mess. But in Europe, Emil Kraepelin had brought some order, at least. The reason for this contrast was the rise of the psychoanalysts in the United States, who had replaced the fledgling following of Kraepelin in the U.S. Per psychoanalysts, mental illness came from a person's unconscious conflicts, which could vary basically infinitely with each person's unique experiences, and therefore they believed could not be boxed into categories. Freud had acknowledged general patterns of dysfunctional behavior like obsessiveness, phobias, or anxiety, to name a few. But he did not believe that symptoms by themselves were particularly relevant, and his movement followed suit. In their eyes, focusing too much on symptoms could just end up being a distraction, and they had to look past it to find the relevant bits of the patient's past. In contrast, Kraepelin's categorical system is based on just two things, the course of the disease and the symptoms. Unsurprisingly, Kraepelin was pretty critical of psychoanalysis. For example, quote, We meet everywhere the characteristic features of Freudian investigation, the representation of arbitrary assumptions and conjectures as assured facts, which are used without hesitation for the building of new castles in the air towering ever higher, and the tendency to generalization beyond all measure from a single observation. As I am more accustomed to walking upon the surer foundations of direct experience, my Philistine conscience of natural science stumbles at every step upon objections, uncertainties, and doubts, while Freud's disciples' soaring tower of imagination carries them over without difficulty. That's a pretty brutal scientist diss if I've ever heard one. Kraepelin had a point, though. Classification can help with standardizing treatment and research on conditions, but they only really work if people agree on them. Even within the psychoanalysts, concepts and ideas varied heavily, making it so even if they were amenable to classification at all, it probably wouldn't have helped much. Freud originally believed that sex was the center of unconscious conflicts, which some of his followers stuck with. Adlerians instead believed aggression to be the center, while Jungians tried to find psychic archetypes, and some folks followed multiple schools of thought. Yet others just made up their own diagnoses entirely, often based on pretty flimsy evidence. You may have heard of Freud's beliefs that all men wanted to subconsciously kill their fathers and have sex with their mothers, or that all women subconsciously long for a penis to gain the power and status associated with it, which as an outsider to psychoanalysis, both are immediately and clearly silly, with little evidence behind them. More destructive was the labeling of homosexuality as a mental disorder, supposedly caused by a domineering mother as a child, which contributed to continued stigma and discrimination of homosexual people. These are just a few examples of when psychoanalysis, with its weak empirical evidence and lack of classification, was susceptible to mistakes and misuse. However, the lack of classification, while not seen as a problem by psychoanalysts, did pose a problem for someone, namely the United States military. When the United States started recruiting soldiers to fight in World War II, each recruit was evaluated by a doctor to figure out if he was fit to serve. Military officials noticed, though, that the rates of rejection varied a lot by region, which intuitively doesn't really make any sense. 
Why were there so many more viable soldiers in different parts of the country? The answer is there weren't. A lot of people were being turned away due to supposed mental illness. Because psychoanalysts were the dominating school of psychiatry in the country, definitions of mental illness were all over the place. In their documentation, psychiatrists had to write down the specific diagnosis that made a recruit ineligible, which many psychoanalyst psychiatrists were not really used to doing. Even those without psychoanalysis background didn't have a standard system in place, since Kraepelin's influence had never grown in the U.S. Some folks tried to use the standard, which is the manual of mental disorders we mentioned last week. But if you'll recall, that was designed specifically for use in mental asylums to gather statistics, and was definitely not made to be applied to the general public, and absolutely not meant as a guide for who is fit to go to war and who isn't. Some draft boards saw rejection rates as high as 40% among their volunteers, due heavily to supposed mental illnesses. For a military that was mobilizing in huge numbers for the largest war that had ever been seen, this was unacceptable. So, in 1941, the army formed a committee headed by a former president of the American Psychiatric Association, which was told to put together some clearly defined diagnoses the army could actually use to evaluate their recruits. Two years later, in 1943, this new psychiatric classification system was released as a technical bulletin, which became known as the Medical 203, and was immediately put to use for evaluating both recruits and active soldiers. It contained about 60 disorders in total, and about 28 pages, detailing every known form of mental illness from minor to severe, a landmark of the time. But despite making history... Psychiatrists of the time just didn't give a crap about the Medical 203. Outside of the military and after the war, even though there was now a standardized tome that could be used for diagnosing mental illness, most psychiatrists kept using what they knew, which was whatever local system they'd been using before the war. Unsurprisingly, when there's no standard process, diagnosing patients is pretty unreliable. In a famous study done in 1949, three psychiatrists evaluated the same 35 patients and provided an independent diagnosis for each one. The three psychiatrists only gave the same diagnosis for a measly 20% of those patients. To put that in context, think about if a medical test was only correct 20% of the time. Uh, yeah, that's pretty abysmal. Finally, the leaders of the American Psychiatric Association realized that this could pretty quickly become a huge problem for them. If the public became aware of how unreliable psychiatrists' diagnoses were, it could cause a crisis in the credibility of psychiatrists. With their own futures on the line, they finally did something about the chaos that was American psychiatric diagnosis. In 1950, they formed their own committee, despite protests from psychoanalysts, to create a manual of all known mental illness. This committee started with the Medical 203, even straight up ripping off some sentences from the military manual. They also referenced the standard by using statistical manual in the title. The end result, first published in 1952, was the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM-1 for short. And this was the first DSM, which contained now 106 disorders. However, the DSM-1 was made by psychiatrists from the APA, which was mostly run by psychoanalysts, meaning that these diagnoses weren't really based on scientific evidence. 
At last, there was a standard document usable in any psychiatric setting in the United States, but it had some serious issues, which is where we'll pick up next week. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, or don't, let me know with the links in the show notes, or leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks also go out to my editor, Jojo Tang, my cover artist, Angie Lee, and Muse Open for this music. Music